This is The Why of Where, a podcast that tries to answer the why, what, where, when, who, and how about the world we live in. My name is Rob Flynn, and in this episode, the question I'll be asking is, why would anyone want to live in the world's most remote settlement? Hmm, um, I guess if, like, for, um, oh, I don't know. Why would somebody want to live in the world's most remote settlement? Um, because I have no idea. Really? I guess it would look pretty, but you can't live on pretty. Well, I can. <laughs> nice and relaxing, nice and quiet, no morning commute. <laughs> to not have to worry about money and kind of just living in a small community kind of sounds nice, being away from the kind of rat race. There must be just certain types of people that like the sense of adventure and isolation. A real do-it-yourself kind of take on life. You know, you can't just walk down the road and everything is there and you can put a lot of effort into just making sure your day-to-day goes from A to B. That seems like an idyllic kind of, like, potential place to be. If you're very much into, like, self-reliance and, like, farming and producing your own food. Maybe it has untouched beauty. Um, you know, hasn't been uh, sullied by lots of tourism. Um, what else? I think the other, like, obvious answer of, like, why would you want to live in a super remote place is, like, oh, yeah, because everybody, should, like, people suck. Yeah, you can you can really see the appeal across the board. Well, because if I was a deer, it'd be nice to live somewhere like that, because you'd have, like, loads of space, nobody at you, nobody in your grill. For remote places, there's a special quality to them, all right. Uh, peaceful, tranquility, living with nature, I suppose, away from the madness of it all. Or they were born there. <laughs> but they have no choice. <laughs> That's their place in the world, and they've carved out this existence. So I guess you need to carry on that like heritage, like your family history. Right now, the only benefit I can think of is that you might be safe from a pandemic, or you could be really screwed if the pandemic started on your island. But then everybody else would be fine. So there's a few reasons. Before I start talking about the settlement in question, and the people who live there, I think it's important that I first try to illustrate just how remote this place is. Tristan Takuna is the territory that holds this particular accolade, as the most remote, permanently inhabited settlement on Earth. It's an island about 11 kilometers in diameter that lies in the middle of the South Atlantic Ocean, pretty much dead centre between Uruguay and South Africa. The nearest inhabited place to it is St Helena, another Atlantic island that lies a mere 2,161 kilometres away, roughly the distance between Ireland and Greenland. And it's not just the distance that makes Tristan so remote. There's no airstrip on the island, so the only way on or off is by boat, assuming you're willing to stomach the six-day, 2,400-kilometre journey from Cape Town. And, if you were up for that, expect to stay there for a while, as the island's port can't dock any ocean-going vessels, so there won't be any way off the island until the next ship visits, which probably won't be for another month or two. Tristan Takuna is a territory of the United Kingdom, made up of a group of islands, the largest and only permanently inhabited one being Tristan itself, along with Gough Island, the Nightingale Islands, and the very aptly named Inaccessible Island. The islands were formed due to volcanic activity, with the main island dominated by a volcano at its centre that rises over 2,000 metres high, significantly taller than any mountain on the UK mainland. 
According to their website, there are currently exactly 246 Tristan Islanders, all of whom are direct descendants of just 15 outside ancestors, eight male and seven female, all of whom arrived on the island between 1816 and 1908. And yes, that is a pretty small gene pool, but there haven't actually been many notable health repercussions reported that are associated with the lack of genetic diversity. The most notable condition seems to be a prevalence of asthma, which around a third of Tristanians experience, compared to 18% in the countries with the highest national rates in the world. The entire population lives in the island's only town, known officially as Edinburgh of the Seven Seas, but referred to locally only as the Settlement. In the settlement, there's only one two-story building, which is the government offices, as well as one school, one pub, one shop, one cafe, one road, and two churches. There's no mobile phone service. They receive just four TV channels, and internet access is limited to a single building. For entertainment, you could try out the Tristan Golf Club, which also happens to be an exposed cattle pasture littered with volcanic rocks so you may lose the occasional golf ball to the Atlantic. So far, I'm not quite sure I'm selling the appeal of the island, but maybe it's got an idyllic climate and landscape that sets it apart. Well, I have some bad news on that front. While the island is certainly visually spectacular, a rugged monolithic mountain rising from the middle of the ocean, it's a pretty forbidding place. The settlement's location on it is by necessity as it's pretty much the only inhabitable spot on the island, with sheer cliffs rising up on all sides and steep slopes and ravines dominating the interior. And on top of that, the weather Tristan receives makes Ireland's climate look almost Mediterranean, with a cool, cloudy climate, regular storms and an average of 252 wet days per year. And on the rare sunny days, don't expect to be able to paddle in the ocean, as strong currents and sharks make it impossible. So I guess it's not the climate then either. In fact, shortly after it was first settled, a journalist made this pretty tough assessment of the island. Quote, Nothing can be more wild and dismal than the aspect of these islands. And in stormy weather, which is common in the winter season, a tremendous sea roars and foams against the rocky shores. Sounds pretty great, right? I mean, they have to make huge sacrifices and impose significant limitations on their own livelihoods just to live in what is a fairly hostile environment that is essentially cut off from the rest of the world most of the time. Not to mention the fact that if you don't happen to get along with your family or neighbours, well, too bad. The next nearest community to you is an ocean away. So it's pretty reasonable to ask, why would anyone want to live there? Well, I think there's two interconnected reasons, one rooted in history and how people settled there, and one in culture that has justified them remaining ever since. So, to start, we should probably take a look at how people first came to the island. The island was first sighted in 1506 by the Portuguese explorer Tristão de Cunha, for whom the island was named, although his expedition didn't actually land on the island. In fact, it wasn't until the 19th century that the first permanent settlers arrived on the island, and given how badly things went for them, it's a small wonder a community was ever established there. In 1796, Britain claimed the islands, but it was deemed unsuitable for settlement. However, that didn't deter American mariner Jonathan Lambert, who landed there in 1810 
with three other men, and claimed the islands for himself, renaming them the Islands of Refreshment, apparently taking inspiration from other imposing places with suspiciously cheerful names like Greenland or the Cape of Good Hope. However, despite the name change, within two years and after great hardship, three of the four men, including Lambert, were dead. The last man managed to stay on as a farmer until, in 1816, Britain formally annexed the islands. The island initially saw economic success as a stopping point for long shipping journeys. But over time, as shipping routes changed, it became increasingly isolated. The population began steadily declining, and their hardship was exacerbated by a sailing disaster that killed 15 of the island's most able-bodied men. The community that remained was later described by one resident as, quote, an island of widows. This was a bleak time in the island's history, with isolation, food shortages, and a dwindling population reaching just 28 people at its lowest point, seeming to point inexorably towards Tristan's eventual abandonment. And so, in 1907, the British government stated they would no longer be supporting them via an annual supply ship and offered to evacuate the remaining residents. But, incredibly, the Tristanians chose to stay, and for 10 years, no ships stopped at the island. It wasn't until 1919 that a British ship eventually docked to notify the islanders of the result of the First World War. However, the island saw something of a revival during World War II, when a Royal Navy intelligence station was established there, along with, for the first time, a school, a general store, and a medical centre. But that revival came to an abrupt end in 1961, when Tristan's volcano erupted. The islanders fled in small vessels to Nightingale Island, where they were intercepted the next day by a ship that miraculously happened to be nearby. The entire population was evacuated to the UK, where they were rehomed. Newspapers at the time reported the story with the assumption that the Tristanians would never return to the island. But a year later, a survey of the island took place, and although it discovered that the landing beach and crawfish factory that formed their main source of income had been destroyed by a lava flow, the main settlement was intact, and it was deemed technically still possible for habitation. Regardless, the British government didn't expect or particularly desire the islanders' return. But despite all they had been through, and the disastrous conditions they would be going back to, the islanders voted 148 to 5 in favour of going back. At numerous points in their history, the islanders have had the opportunity and more than enough justification to leave the island. Economic isolation, shipping accidents, crop failures and catastrophic natural disasters have all confronted the Tristanians. Not to mention the daily challenges they have faced living in such a remote location. But when you look at their history, you can't argue that it's simply force of habit or some social contract that has kept them there all these years. There's been a persistence that they will continue to call this island their home. And after the eruption, you could no longer even suggest that they didn't realize what life they could have led had they lived elsewhere. Because in 1963, after two years living in England, they made a deliberate and informed decision about where they wanted to call home, and virtually all of them returned to the island. 
What was initially a settlement founded by shipwrecked sailors, naval officers and ill-prepared idealists grew over time into a place where the inhabitants had ancestral ties, where their parents had lived and their grandparents. And it's not just this historical heritage that drives their connection, but also the unique culture that has developed over the past 200 years. The settlement was founded with a particular ethos that is still maintained today. At the outset, the first settlers established rules to prevent any individual from disproportionately accumulating wealth or power on the island. This ethos can still be seen in many aspects of island life, including an egalitarian political system, communal land ownership, which also excludes outsiders from permanently settling there, and a shared responsibility for essential activities such as farming. Farming is something all families participate in as a cornerstone of island life, ensuring a degree of self-sufficiency and as the sole means by which they can have fresh food. Beyond that, many people work in the catching and processing of their main culinary export, the Tristan Rock Lobster. Sales of crafts and memorabilia to visiting cruise ships and online shoppers also provide a source of income, including their own custom stamps for all you philatelists out there which apparently is the technical term for stamp collectors. And if stamps aren't your thing, maybe their unique range of love socks would be of interest. Depending on how many stripes they have, they can denote a variety of degrees of infatuation, ranging from fondness, two large stripes, to head over heels in love, two large stripes, and five small stripes. Given its remoteness, the archipelago is unsurprisingly a haven for unique flora and fauna, with albatrosses, rockhopper penguins, and the world's smallest flightless bird, the inaccessible island rail, calling it home. And it's not only the wildlife there that has developed unique characteristics from such isolation. The islanders have a distinctive dialect of English that is filled with colloquialisms and simplified grammatical structures. A couple examples of this would be that they have a tendency to add H's to words that start with a vowel, so apple would become happle and they usually don't invert verbs in questions, so instead of asking, how are you, they would ask, how you is. They also have numerous unique words, such as pinnamon for penguin, watron for stream, and ashmere for asthma. Some are also derived from other languages, with gansey as their term for jumper being one that most Irish people would recognize. Their unusual terminology also applies to many place names, as given the limited opportunity for confusion, they often have pleasingly straightforward names, including Big Point, Soggy Plain, Noisy Beach, Green Hill, Big Green Hill, Big Gulch, and, of course, Big Sandy Gulch. They also observe their own particular holidays and customs, including Old Year's Night, which takes place on the last day of each year, and I think we can all agree is a much cooler name than New Year's Eve. Rather than focusing on the upcoming year, their occasion is a day in which to reflect on the year that has passed, which also seems like a pretty positive idea. And on top of that, as part of the Old Year's Night celebrations, the men of the island dress up in costume as monsters called Okololis, who prowled the settlement trying to catch children, so it's a bit like Halloween as well. Basically, I'm fully behind us replacing our annual Fireworks, Jules Holland and Numbered Novelty Glasses based celebration with this Tristanian tradition. And let me also pitch you on their annual winter break, where the entire population takes a three-week holiday over Christmas, and which begins with Breakup Day, 
where they held various parties and celebrations across the island. Sounds good to me. And of course, there are also the day-to-day benefits that the islanders cite to being so far from normal society, such as being able to roam the island freely and take in the unique landscape, flora and fauna. They don't have to lock their doors or worry about traffic, pollution or crime. They describe Tristan Takuna as a calm and pristine place, somewhere so quiet that sometimes you can almost hear the grass grow. Over time, the Tristanians have fine-tuned their way of life to suit the island, and now live a lifestyle that, in large part, would be utterly impossible to pursue anywhere else. Communal land ownership, unique cultural celebrations, a non-hierarchical society, and an unorthodox English patois are all things that they would invariably lose out on if they were to move anywhere else. One of the main reasons somewhere like Tristan Takuna sparks the imagination is that, for many of us, the idea of living in a place like that seems utterly incomprehensible. To live without many of today's modern amenities, or have the ability to easily travel or meet new people. And so, those who have chosen to call that place home inevitably elicit our curiosity. Certainly, that was my feeling about it when I started my research. But the more I learned about the community there, their lifestyle and unique customs, the more I found myself being less concerned about where the island was in the world, and the more I understood the straightforward and understandable reasons they have remained there ever since, despite isolation, depopulation, and the occasional natural disaster. Although Jonathan Lambert's monarchical aspirations for the islands failed to materialize, and his time there was disastrous and short-lived, I think the motivations he declared at the time would still largely chime with islanders today. He went there with a, quote, desire and determination of preparing for myself and family a house where I can enjoy life. And also, quote, remain, if possible, far removed beyond the reach of chicanery and ordinary misfortunes. So now, when I think of Tristan de Kuna, rather than seeing it as this incredibly isolated dot in a vast ocean, or this vestigial oddity of a seafaring colonial past, I see it mainly as just another small town, a tight-knit community that has used its remoteness and small scale to its advantage, and one that has weathered remarkable challenges in order to sustain itself. So, why wouldn't people want to live there? Thanks for listening to The Why of Where. If you have any feedback or corrections for the show, please feel free to email at thewhyofwherepodcast at gmail.com or find me on Twitter or Instagram at thewhyofwhere. This episode was written and produced by me, Rob Flynn. Music is by Sounds Like an Earful and Blue Dot Sessions. And thanks to Chris Flynn for the podcast artwork. A special thanks to all my contributors. Megan. Suri. Edward. Kina. Neve. Mary. Kieran. Jill. Milos. Finbar. Thanks again for listening.